Connemara is a region especially rich in its music traditions. It's a region with strong local styles that give its music a unique character. And of course, it's a region that has produced many celebrated singers and players. But perhaps no one sang or played with more abandon or better conveyed their enjoyment in making music or drew upon a wider repertoire than Cullum O'Quion. The sheer force of his personality and his sense of fun comes vividly through in all his recordings. Several collectors gathered material from him over the years, including Alan Lomax, but by far the greater part of these recordings were made by Seamus Ennis, who began his relationship with Colum while working for the Irish Folklore Commission in the 1940s. Former director of the National Folklore Collection and author of Colum O'Quion, an Irish singer and his world. Rhea McKeogorn. In documenting tradition, the Irish Folklore Commission appointed a number of field collectors in various parts of Ireland. And the field collectors, they were full-time positions, full-time appointments, and the collectors were based in different parts of Ireland. And these included well-known names in terms of the history of folklore collecting in Ireland, like Sean O'Hoghy in Donegal, Shosa O'Dolly in Kerry, and Michael J. Murphy in Tyrone and Fermanagh. But it was felt in the late 1930s and even from the start of the establishment of the Irish Folklore Commission that music and song merited particular attention because the full-time collectors wouldn't necessarily have the qualifications or the skills to document the staff notation and the words of songs. And... Liam Denory was appointed in 1940 as a f the first full-time collector of music and song with the Irish Folklore Commission. And he remained collecting with the Commission largely in Munster. He remained for two years with the Commission and he left in 1942. So there was an opening for an appointment of a full-time collector of music and song. And the person who was appointed in 1942 was Seamus Ennis, and he began working with the commission. He was based in Dublin, although he was a full-time collector, and he used to make forays into the west of Ireland, mostly, and to Donegal, to the northwest as well. And he gradually made his way west towards Spiddle, and then towards Corna, and eventually he was to meet with Colm O'Quion. And this was to be a very decisive point in the documenting and collecting of material from Colum. The collection includes stories and lore, local customs and beliefs, proverbs and local cures, all collected from Colum. But here our focus is on his music and song and the Connemara style in which he was rooted. He had a huge repertoire. In fact, Seamus Ennis claimed to have collected 212 songs from Colum. Broadcaster and musician Peter Brown. I never met Colin O'Keon. I knew Seamus reasonably well. But any time he mentioned his name, he mentioned it very warmly. 
and I know that he, he valued that relationship very much. Of course, he was proud, and he often said the figure, the 212, everyone knows the 212 songs and lyrics and so forth, but there was also something more than that. And I get the impression, you know, that if there is such a thing, and maybe there's not as a sort of prototypical collector, that it's a sort of transaction. The, the singer or the musician has something, and the collector appears, and... The, the collector collects and, and gathers the material and this, this is a valuable thing. But I have a sense that with Seamus it was a lot more than that, that, you know, he seemed to be sharing in their lives. He was out fishing. And if, if I think I, I read it right, that Colin was almost hoping that Seamus could move to Connemara for a while and, you know, would have been sad that, that his repertoire was exhausted and Seamus wouldn't come anymore. Colin composed this little skit for Ennis's benefit. I wish that Seamus and Ness would come to me in time. When I was in humor and my youth and prime, I would sing for him the old songs. I would sing them loud and long. And Colum was the man to sing them when he get his humor on. I got the impression that, you know, it was quite an intimate intense thing that was between them because, you know, Seamus would be sitting, particularly in the time of the, the writing as opposed to the recording, you know, they'd be trading phrases of music back and forth and Seamus would write them and, and, and then sing it back to Colm and Colm say, that's not qu quite it, or he'd say, that's fine, you know. And if you look at the relationship, so for Seamus, he was, of course, fulfilling his, his duty as a, as a folklore collector and he was getting all the music and the song and the folklore, the stories... Uh, and he was also observing uh, observing a way of life that was very different to his own in Dublin. And for Cullum, there would have been, OK, first of all, I suppose, a, a, an exotic presence in his life. I mean, you know, if you're living a, a life that was fairly self-contained with your family and your fishing and your farm and whatever else, that suddenly to have someone like appear with this recording equipment and on Shannar and all that kind of stuff, you know. So th that would be an exotic presence in his life. But also... It would have to be the case to be some sort of validation of what he was doing. He mightn't interpret in those terms, but everyone likes a bit of praise and everyone likes to be noticed. And here was someone whom he greatly respected appearing in his life who really valued what he already would probably have valued. So they were each kind of, there was a lot more happening for both of them. And then together there was all this sort of sharing. And that's the thing about Seamus, I suppose, as, as a collector that... that um, he, he wasn't just a collector. He actually became one of those people. I, I think so anyway. So he, he, they would have seen him as one of themselves, not as a, some sort of external person that comes and, and goes like that, you know. And there's an evident informality that comes through in some of Ennis's recordings of Callum. Seamus had so much going as a collector then that he, he had this exquisite taste that he knew what was what and what was good and wasn't, you know, maybe maybe so good in that sort of way. And uh, Colm or anyone from whom uh, Seamus was collecting would have that sense that Seamus knew, knew what he was getting. So they would want to perform to their best for him, I suppose. And, and also they would want to please him because he was a friend. So in a sense, it was a kind of a match made in heaven and you can sense that. And if you see that film that Eamon the Butler made, The Miles and Miles of Music, uh, 
and they meet again after many years, you, you, you can see the bond instantly of two old men at this stage. But it's, it's like as if the years sort of vanish in a sense and, and they're there and they start singing the Portnigaboiga together and that. And it's, it's a very moving thing because, you know, I think within a, a, a year or a year and a half, Cullum had died and, you know, some six or eight years later, Seamus was gone. But it's just, it's just like two old men and you, you, you can sense all that, that happened between them so many years earlier, you know. Cullum was born in 1893. That's less than 50 years after the Great Famine. Queen Victoria was on the throne in England and independence was still 30 years away. He was born in Glinsk, near Cushel and near Corna in Connemara, and he spent most of his life there. He was a small farmer and fisherman. His father was known as Creon Bador, or Boatman. His mother was Maureen Ikenyomara from Inishni, near Roundstone in County Galway. He was the eldest of nine children, and he was brought up in a house where there was a great deal of music and song. Here, Colin tells of his grandfather. My grandfather was the best singer you could ever hear. And there was another man in the village called Green. Tom Green was his name. And they were about uh, 100 yards, and he was from one another, the two houses. And after the day's work, always when my grandfather comes in, he's stretched back by the fireside, and he used to smoke his pipe and start singing. And from the old fellow broad, heard him singing. When he'd have the song, he always himself would start. Both of them was here and one another, and it was about 100 yards, and it was more of a side from one another. They were trying which of them would be the best. He used to visit neighbouring houses along with his father, and it was from his father that he picked up most of the songs and stories, and also from older people in the locality in Glinsk. He not only learnt the songs and music, but he also learnt how to sing and was guided by his father about good singing or not so good singing, and learnt terms in relation to the expression and the singing and the presentation of song. His father would correct him or guide him as regards singing. And as Colum himself once said, even if there were a thousand people present, his father would have no hesitation whatsoever in guiding him or correcting his way of singing. One piece of advice his father gave him was to start a song by singing gently so that he could then raise his voice gradually without the danger of it breaking. Colum's songs are sung by him in what's called the Shanno style of singing, which is very much associated with Connemara and especially with the Erisandic district where Colum was from. And Colum predated very well-known Shanno singers like Joseph O'Haney, Josie Hanjaka uh, Sean O'Connor, he predated them by a generation. So his singing was very much in the house, at home, and in the family setting for the most part. The style of singing is quite ornamented and very rich. Cullum sang many songs that are very well known throughout the Irish language singing tradition. And one of these songs is on Skelpin Dreinach, or the Thorny Little Rock. And 
It tells of a young man who falls in love with a beautiful girl as he sets out one morning in the woods. And in keeping with most of the love songs in Irish tradition, the imagery is based very much in nature and it describes the birds, the landscape, um, the trees and the fruit on the trees and, and the woods. The final verse of the song on Skelpin Dreinach or Thorny Little Rock translates, If I were a small thrush, I would go along with you. I would play music for you every fine, calm morning. Above all, you would be my choice. And it's on the bright breast of your shirt I would fall asleep. <laughs> Oh, I'm not the 
Colum also was very interested all along in the words of songs, the stories of songs and the context of the songs. And he learnt these from his father. He had a vocabulary to describe ways of singing. And one word that he used was a word called kratan, which means a kind of choking sound, which may well be related to the type of emotion that is used very much in some of the love songs in Irish. And most of Colum's songs were sung in his native Irish, but his repertoire did include some songs in English too. I went out in Mimmy morning to have a pleasant walk. I sat myself down by an old stone wall to hear two lovers talk, to hear what they might say, my dear. To hear what they might say, then I might know a little more about love before I'd go away. Peace stands for Paddy, I suppose. Jam for my love, John. W stands for false Willie O, but Johnny is the fairest man. Johnny is the fairest man, my dear. Johnny is the fairest man. I don't care what anybody says, but Johnny is the fairest man. Come on, sit beside me now. Together on the green. It's around three quarters of a year or more since together we had been. Since together we had been, my dear. Since together we had been. It's around three quarters of a year or more since together we had been. I will not sit beside you now. Now or any other time. You are in the law with another pretty chap, and you has no longer mine. You has no longer mine, my dear. You has no longer mine. You are in the law with another pretty chap, and you has no longer mine. Peace stands for Paddy, I suppose. Jennifer for my love, John. W stands for false Willie but Johnny is the fairest man. Johnny is the fairest man, my dear. Johnny is the fairest man. I don't care what anybody says, but Johnny is the fairest man. I'd climb up a tall, tall tree to rob a little bird's nest. And I'd come down with either leaf of flower to the girl that I love best. To the girl that I love best, my dear. To the girl that I love best. I'd come down with either leaf of flower to the girl that I love best. Peace stands for party, I suppose. Jeff for my love, John. W stands for false Willie but Johnny is the fairest man. Johnny is the fairest man, my dear. Johnny is the fairest man. I don't care what anybody says, but Johnny is the fairest man. Cullum especially liked light-hearted songs, and he sang a number of songs that one might associate with children, and they were of a particular faster speed than the possibly better known love songs. And one of the songs, more light-hearted songs that he sang, was a song called Michalach in Fein, which is in jig time. It translates as the fair-haired Callaghan. And the fair-haired Callaghan is reputed to have been a very good boat person. 
And like so many songs of columns, the place names mentioned in Ancalachin Fian are place names that are around the Connemara coast near Glinsk and beyond. And these songs continue to have a life in the Connemara area. Here's Roisin El Safti with Michalakin Fian. Bad Pegas, Bad Mohor, Bad Pegas, Bad Mohor, Bad Pegas, Bad Mohor, it my Halloween Bad Pegas, Bad Mohor, Bad Pegas, Bad Mohor, Gaslingus, we yell it my Halloween fee. Oh, Hosharic Galta, Hosharic Galta, Hosharic Galta, my Halloween fee. Oh, Hosharic Galta, Ishlagani, Barnachas, Washatriyal, my Halloween Kapolaskar, <laughs> the late 70s, 78, 79, uh, it was decided, as it did happen in Radio Aaron, that uh, pe- people should be should be interviewed and their life story sort of uh, gotten from them. And there was a sort of a joke. The man who used to do these interviews was a famous broadcaster himself, Parley O'Reilly. And the joke sort of was that if Parley O'Reilly requested this interview um, f- f- from you, that this was actually aimed to be your obituary. So someone somewhere in Radio Aaron had said, we'd, we'd better get him before he goes, or words to that effect. They were transmitted, but it was also a very good public service thing that they would do these interviews and, and have it there for posterity as well as an obituary, I suppose. So uh, Seamus came to our house in Sandico, my parents' house, and spent about three or four days there, and Porrick O'Reilly came out and did this in-depth interview with him, and 
I, I was listening to it and they got on very well together because again ironically they, they had both started in Radio Air and themselves on the same day in 1947 when so many people so there was sort of a bond between them but Seamus is describing the different place he was to Kerry to Donegal and so forth and they talk about Connemara and Porrick if I remember this rightly says uh, was there any outstanding person you collected from in Connemara and Seamus says uh, yes Colm O'Quion and uh, Seamus makes a distinction then between, he says, well, in terms of repertoire, that was easy. He he had the 212, you mentioned all this. And Porrick says to him, well, what about the, you're, you're making a distinction there between repertoire and, and actual singing performance. And Seamus said, yes. So he said that uh, there were different types of singers. Some would be very sweet and they would have what he called a sweet uh, musical singing style. Others he described as an outdoor boatman style, which is interesting. And he said you'd know from looking at your own no notation of these which was which, and you had to notate them differently. So Porrick says to him, who would be an example now of a sweet style? And Seamus says, after a pause, says, Sean O'Donoghue from Carna had that. And Colm, uh, and then Porrick says, and, and what about Colm? And he uses these words then to describe Colm's singing. He said, it was actually rough blustery singing he said as though they were out on as though he was out on a boat with a gale blowing but that's uh, very graphic and he doesn't mean that in any derogatory sense at all but it's just it distinguishes the style and when you hear Colm singing I think you can you can hear that that he's he's it's fairly full-throated and it's again it's very sort of extrovert in some sort of way you know and and very attractive I have to say having heard it the mountaintop lilted by Kalamokui on it's surely an example of his boatman singing in a gale style of abandon that Cullen brings to his lilting, throwing himself into the rhythm, is characteristic of the Connemara style. We hear it in his melodion playing too. If there is a Connemara style, and I think there is, I always think of it uh, as being played on the melodion and played fast and, and highly energetic, and that is, is the sense that I had looking at these tunes and hearing his melodion playing. player Johnny O'Connolly grew up immersed in the Connemara tradition. I think the characteristic of, of Connemara music is that kind of a certain amount of, of, of wildness and, and uh, joy and simplicity in the, in, in the playing as well as you, you hear in Collins playing pure simplicity but you know it's that um, what they used to call what, what it calls the second simplicity where, where there's huge understanding behind that. And here is Johnny Oog with the tune associated with Cullum, Ban Fordine. <laughs> 
Metallica melodium and play a tune like Bad 14, you know, it feels to me like I'm connecting to to something that goes back hundreds of years through my dad and through people like Colm and, you know, because that's that's where I come from musically. That's that's what's in in my blood, especially on the melodium. I feel because of the sound, the sound of melodium has that ancient kind of a, a sound. is due to the limited range of the melodion. There were no two-row accordions at that time, especially in Colum's time. Um, so tunes that he could lilt in his, in his, you know, in, in his voice, singing voice, whatever, when he played them on, on the melodion, he mightn't have all the notes, so that you have to find a way around. And that's part of the simplicity of, the, of the, the playing sometimes as well, as the notes aren't always there, you know? And that's another characteristic of, of that old melodion playing in, in column and people like that, is that they don't always have every note for the tune, so they have to find a way of, of playing the tune that's slightly different from the singing version. So, so they kind of maybe stay on the note. I hear that in, in, in Colum's music, and I heard it in my dad as well. It was the variety of material in the Colum O'Quion recordings and manuscripts that most impressed traditional fiddler Maura O'Keefe. When I looked at the manuscripts of Colum O'Quion and heard some of the stuff, I think the thing that amazed me about him was the, the breadth of his repertoire. Like, his repertoire was very wide-ranging. So, like, he had jigs, he had lots of reels, Lots of different reels. OK, he had Miss McLeod's and he had... But, like, he had the Lasses of Bunker Hill, the Jolly Tinker. Um, he had flings. He had the keel row. I remember the keel row was one of them. But he had loads of slip jigs, which I wouldn't have associated with any other musicians, and I certainly would have associated with Connemara. So I, I wonder, why was he playing so many slip jigs? Where did he learn them? But that, that stood out for me, the breadth of his repertoire. And one of those slip jigs particularly appealed to Peter Brown. One time in the 1970s, it was, I was in Seamus Ennis's house. He, he shared a house in Terran. You're just an ordinary 3 3D, what's it called? A three room semi D in Terran with Liam O'Flynn and Liam's brother Michal. And Seamus, you know, you'd go up there to the house and he might play a bit on the pipes and he, he, he also would play you cassettes of recordings that, that he had made for the BBC, etc., etc. And he had the pipes on, obviously, and he 
produced this tune, which he said that Colm called the Tits of Miller, which he reckoned was uh, Colm maybe not being understanding the term the Dusty Miller. He didn't know where it came from. I just thought it, it was a beautiful tune. He played it for me, and I was very taken by it because it had a lot of piping manoeuvres in it, a lot of cranning, and I don't suppose Colm heard that much piping in his day, you know, so it just happened to, to, to work quite well on the pipes. So Seamus played it for me. To me, it was just a good tune. I remember playing it for Brown Don Bernock, who was a renowned folk music collector, etc., and many other things. And he was taken to the fair by this. He thought this was wonderful, and he had me to play it again. And through that, it got a sort of a popularity, and a lot of people play it nowadays. You'll, you'll hear it on commercial discs and so on and so on. But it's just possibly an example of one tune that one person had, and he communicates it to Seamus, and Seamus communicates it to other people, and suddenly, you know, it, it, it sort of comes alive again. It's, it's written down. It's, it's in the manuscripts in the Folklore uh, Commission, Folklore Department. But it's just, it's a nice tune, it's a catchy one. And what I would say about it is, I don't know any tune that, that's like it. It's a slip jig, but I don't know many others that, that it, you know, often one tune will remind you of another. This doesn't remind me of any other, so it's quite distinct. I just play it on the whistle, but... manuscripts that that I was given from the the folklore department about 20 tunes you, you can say certain things about them or you can deduce certain things about them that one thing was there, there weren't that many titles some of them were just particus real you know so you, you didn't necessarily see some of the more exotic titles that you see in, in traditional music like you know the priest in his boots or the the, the, the the upstairs in a tent or that sort of thing but I thought it was beautiful music some of them were tunes I'd never heard before, unusual unusual music, and that's always a, a kind of a blessing when you hear that. Others of them I had heard before, but the versions are very different. And that, again, that's something that makes traditional music very, very interesting when you hear variations of what you think you know already. It just gives you kind of pleasant surprises along the way. And the one thing that strikes you is definitely dance music. Sometimes there's an idea that the musician plays and the dancer dances to the music. But that's never the way. I remember talking to Mick Tuberty, who was the flute player with the Chieftains, but also a man who was actually an expert in dance. And he said to me that when you're playing for a dancer, it's actually, it's a communion, it's a, it's a duet. So you follow the dancer as much as the dancer will follow you. But I actually get the impression, listening to, looking at these manuscripts and having heard Colm's Melosian playing, that it's highly energetic. And I'd actually go so far as to say, Okay, a lot of the time nowadays, it is traditional dance music, but you will find people in a hall sitting on plush seats just listening to a solo musician playing, and there's no suggestion of dance, which is funny because the whole thing has its origins in dance music. I would say, in the era that Colm was doing it, that the dancing was actually the, the primary thing, and the music was, was secondary, and people certainly didn't worry about the things that are kind of viewed as important nowadays in a music competition or something like ornamentation, etc. The dancer was supplying only one thing, energetic rhythm. And that's what you hear in column. And I think that's also what you hear 
in this music as well. It's it's all about rhythm rather than variation. But then they are beautiful tunes, and when you hear them played in a sort of a more concert formal setting, and, and with ornamentation, with those other things, they, they are beautiful pieces of music. Uh, the way they're written, but I think it's always the way that traditional music tends to be written, with, is without ornamentation, because that's in the nature of traditional mu- musicians that each person puts in their own thing and makes something of it. So there's no point in it being written with the variations because that's only something that happened on the day probably for one particular musician. But if you take these fairly, the, the simple writings that Seamus has done from Colin McQueen, you then put in your own into them and you can make quite something of them, of them then. But I'd say as Seamus heard them, as Colm either lilted or played them for him, they were, they were rhythmic and they were rooted in dance music. And Peter is joined here by his son Kieran and a couple of more tunes from the manuscripts. These would be two tunes that are in some way representative of the sort of music that I've seen in the manuscripts from Colm and they're quite distinctive. The first one is particularly unusual for me because it's it, the first part is in one particular time signature but then it switches in the second to something unusual and that gives me a sense that you know traditional music has been sort of regularized over the years but this is something a tune that's played in a particular way that would be peculiar or even give a sort of a jolt to today's musicians but obviously back then if the player was doing this and the dancers were doing it then it didn't really matter what anyone else was doing you know so it's not you know it's possible if you went in for a Coltus Coltarian competition or something and did this the adjudicator would say oh you've you've made a mess of the time the time and the rhythm or something like this but point being if it worked for the musician and it worked for the, the dancers within the four walls of where it was happening then it, it didn't matter who, who else had a view on it you know but we'll try them the second one is Nikana von Vonne that's another one that Colm had but again it's it's a it's a lovely lovely tune Died in 1975. 
he had of course been prized in his local community for his music, song and lore. After all, these were the chief entertainments at the time. But for Johnny Wharton Larry O'Connor, he was first and foremost a very good neighbour. He was a genius in his own way, and he could hardly write his name. He built, he was a, a builder, he was a blacksmith, but he could turn his hand to a lot of things. And he used to make some of his own tools, yeah. But he made the old type of dressers, he made a few of them. I saw a dresser over our next door neighborhood he made, you know, so I did, I said, I'd like to make a dresser like that. But I hadn't, you know, some of the dressers that have some nice fancy work on the timber, you'd have to get a special plane to do that, uh, the beading plane. So I knew Colum had the beating plane, so I went over on my bicycle and I thought he might refuse me, where you know a lot of people, to give tools to the likes of me that be afraid that I'd destroy them, you know. Ah, oh, indeed I would, he said, why wouldn't I? Do you know how to use it? I don't. Oh, he's told one of the guys, bring in a piece of timber. And he put it there on two chairs, you know, and started rushing now, turning it around, do it yourself now. Yeah, and he taught me how to, to work the plane. And several times I went over to him. But I, I had great time for him. He, he was a very mannerly man. I never heard a bad word out of his mouth. We're going out with a young piper giving new life to tunes in the archived collection. This is Kieron Brown with his personal interpretation of three jigs taken from the Calamo Quion manuscripts. The Storm and the Rain, an untitled slip jig, and the Lark's March.
Start the Song Gently was presented and produced by JJ O'Shea. The programme was a JJ O'Shea production for RTE Lyric FM.